You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. All right, you ready for this? Acts chapter 7, let's open up our Bibles there. Father in heaven, bless us now as we come to the hearing and the teaching of your word. Pour out your grace upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Acts chapter 7, we come in the middle of a very important chapter. Stephen, one of the young leaders of the early church, these early followers of Jesus, he was on trial before a religious council. It was a scene full of intimidation where Stephen, just one man, had to speak in front of a whole group of men who would be like in our modern day conception, like congressmen or senators. Distinguished men with lots of power and prestige were going to sit in judgment of this man, Stephen, who was falsely accused of blaspheming God, of blaspheming Moses, of speaking against the temple and against the customs that God had delivered to the people of Israel. Those were false accusations, but they were actually true, excuse me, they were actually twistings of true statements that Stephen had made. And they were two statements having to do with the superiority of Jesus and his greatness. Now, coming into the middle of this, Stephen has been developing two main themes in his response to the council. The two main themes he has to do have nothing to do with defending himself. Stephen's not really trying to defend himself. He is trying to explain why, why those who were trying him were wrong with their emphasis on their customs and especially on the temple. Now, I'll just tell you, the two main themes that Stephen develops, we're going to see this repeated here. The two main themes that Stephen develops are simply this. Number one, God is greater than the temple. And that you can't confine the presence of God or the work of God to the temple that stood in Jerusalem in those days. Secondly, he's going to emphasize the theme. That God's people, especially the ancient people of Israel, had a habit of rejecting the messengers that God sent to them. So let's jump into it now, verse 30, and see how he continues to develop these themes. Verse 30. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying... I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Now, Stephen is sharing with this council stories that would be familiar to them. Of course they knew who Moses was. Of course they knew that God called Moses there on the slopes of Mount Sinai before he ever went back to Egypt and Pharaoh and said, let my people go. But what Stephen is doing is he's highlighting aspects of the story that they may have wanted to forget. For example, he's highlighting the example here as it's explained right there in verse 30 that an angel of the Lord appeared to him where? At the temple in Jerusalem? No, there wasn't a temple in Jerusalem. In the promised land? No, this was out in the wilderness in Mount Sinai. An angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the form of the burning bush where? Outside of the temple, outside of the promised land. The whole idea? 
God is not confined to the temple. That's what he's emphasizing to this religious council. And so God commissioned Moses. He said, I'll send you to Egypt. Found right there in this example that Stephen gives him. He continues on now to verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one that God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought him them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Again, notice it in verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected. Moses offered himself as a deliverer to Israel when Moses was about 40 years old. But Israel rejected him then, and Moses went out to the desert and lived there for another 40 years. The whole point being this. They rejected Moses as a deliverer when he first appeared to them. Now, Moses was still going to be their deliverer, even though he had been once ejected, rejected. As I should say, ancient Israel, they rejected, they resisted Moses. And he continues that same theme starting here for verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation on the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. And for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. Now, did you notice that in verse 37? This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, Now, every one of the men on that council who sat in judgment of Stephen, they believed themselves to be absolutely faithful followers of Moses. Yet Stephen says, you're not faithful followers of Moses because Moses told you to be on the lookout for a greater prophet who would come after him. And you missed Jesus when he came unto you. Moses told you to be ready for him and you weren't ready for him, you should have listened to Moses. And then he emphasizes in the fact that that Moses received the living oracles of God, the great revelation of God, bringing it back to the idea in verse 37, excuse me, back in verse 41, where he says that in response to Moses' receiving these things from God, they responded with idolatry. And verse 41 says that they made a calf in those days and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. You see, when ancient Israel rejected Moses and God's work through Moses, they replaced him with their own man-made religion. That's what the golden calf was all about, right? Man-made religion, not God-received religion. Stephen applied that same principle to the council that he spoke from. You guys uh, pretend to be following Moses, but what you've done is the same thing that Israel did in the days of the golden calf. You've replaced what God brought down from heaven, and you've replaced it with your own man-made religion. That phrase in verse 41 You rejoiced in the works of your own hands, I think is especially meaningful. 
Because this is my guess, and it's nothing more than a guess. Don't build anything on this. But my guess is that when Stephen said that, he gestured toward the temple building. I don't know where the temple building was in geography to where Stephen was. Maybe it was in front of him, maybe behind him, right or left, I don't know. But he gestured toward the temple building to make this point. That temple is made with hands. You guys worship the temple just like ancient Israel worshiped the golden calf. Listen, the temple that God gave to Israel in those days was glorious. It wasn't the original temple built by Solomon. No, that temple was destroyed when the Babylonians conquered ancient Judah. But this was the temple rebuilt in the days of Ezra and then beautified and expanded and made glorious by the work of Herod. But Stephen is pointing out something very legitimate. You guys glory in the temple. Your religion is all around the temple and focused upon the temple. But as wonderful as that temple is, it's made with hands. Angels didn't come down from heaven and put those blocks together. It's the work of human ingenuity, human achievement. And you guys worship the temple of God more than you worship the God of the temple. Friends, that is a common thing for religious people to do. We take good things, even good gifts that God gives us, and we find it very easy to make idols of it. And so that's now what the people on that council and ancient Israel as a whole was doing. They were worshiping the works of their own hands. And so what does God do in response to that? Look at verse 42. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Rempham, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Here Stephen is reminding them of the cost of idolatry. You reject God. You replace the God of the temple... With the temple of God, don't imagine for a moment that there's not a price that you pay for that. Friends, idolatry is not only tragic, it's not only illogical, but friends, it will always be met with ruin. Always. There's always a price to pay for idolatry. And I don't know where idolatry touches your life. I don't know what you find it all too easy to put before God in your life. But whatever it is, it's going to be tragic how that turns out. That story never ends well. As it says here, God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. They ended up in a far worse place. And now in verse 44, he's going to start really bearing the point home. Hold on to this. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the David, until day, the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High, catch this, does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? 
Has my hand not made all these things? Here, Stephen's walking them through the history, right? That there was a center for worship in ancient Israel. First, the tabernacle, which was essentially a tent with an altar and a holy place. And then as the years went on, they constructed a temple. David conceived it, but Solomon built it. And that temple of Solomon was glorious. But here, please notice the force of that verse when we come to verses 49 and 50, where he points out that the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. That's the point made in verse 48. Stephen confronted their idolatry with the temple. And in doing so, what they tried to do was to confine God in the temple. Yet you and I know that God's too big to fit into any temple that man could make, right? We understand that. Now listen, as I speak about this thing and the idolatry of the temple, I think I would sense that there's a lot of sympathetic ears out there. Yeah, deliver it to them, right? Preach it. We shouldn't idolize a place. We shouldn't idolize a temple. And I think that there's, well, look, we love this building that God's given us. It's been very useful to us and very great. God has done a lot of amazing things in this facility over the years, and we're very grateful for it. But I doubt that there's any, or maybe just a few might be threatened to idolize this particular building, right? We hold it all with a loose hand. This is the congregation of the Lord, and we just move to wherever he leads us, right? If he has us here, well, then great, we'll stay here. If he moves us someplace else, he moves us someplace else. But we don't want to make an idol about any location. So you're fine with me preaching it real hard about not idolizing a place, right? Well, let me make you mad for a second then. (laughs) You see, our tendency today is not to idolize or to confine it, uh, not to confine God into a geography. Our tendency today is to confine God on our calendar, Sunday mornings is for God, right? You give God a couple of hours on Sunday morning. Well, how about the rest of the week? But this is what I fear, and I think what many pastors fear. They look out over their congregation and they wonder, is this the only time you worship God all week long? Is this the only time you pray with Him? Is this the only time you open up God's Word and let Him speak to you? Is this the only time that that you really talk with other people about the things of God? Or have you confined God to Sunday morning? You, You see, I think practically speaking, for some people, God may as well live here and only here because this is the only place you meet with him. Don't confine God. Don't confine him by geography Don't confine him on your calendar. God is God over every place. And God is God over every day of the week. Do you believe it? It's really true. Now, friends, we got to grab onto this and hold it with all of our heart. But because we can be guilty of exactly the same principle that this ancient council that Stephen so boldly confronted, it's the same principle, we just express it in a little different way, right? But whenever we try to confine God, whether it's by geography or whether it's by our calendar, we're guilty of the same sin that Stephen was confronting the council about. Now on to verse 51. Wow, Stephen really gets bold here. You see, I believe that as Stephen was speaking, he could look at the faces of those listening to him. 
And he could see that they were starting to get angry. He could see them whispering excitedly one to another. He could see the redness in their faces. He could probably see some veins bulging in their necks. They were getting angry. He could see that in their hearts, in their minds, they were rejecting once again God's message to them. So this is what he has to say. He has to warn them about their rejection. Verse, where are we now? Verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom now you have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Those words of Stephen must have exploded like a bombshell in the midst of that council. He told them in verse 51, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Just like your fathers did, that's what you're doing now. He said, you're rejecting God just as your forefathers did. You're stiff-necked, that means you won't bow before God, and you're uncircumcised in your heart and your ears. You now have become betrayers and murderers of the Lord himself, as he expresses in verse 52. But when he said what he says in verse 53, I think that this really shook him. This really outraged them. He said, you receive the law by the direction of angels and you have not kept it. I believe that that particular uh, accusation particularly outraged the council because everyone among them prided themselves as being men who kept the law of Moses. Hey, we're the leaders of Israel. We are law-abiding citizens within the community of Israel. We keep the law. We honor Moses. But Stephen now boldly calls them out. And he says, you receive the law from Moses, which was reported to be delivered by the hands of angels. You receive the law of Moses, but you refuse to keep it. Because every man on that council thought of themselves as Saul of Tarsus did before his conversion. Later on, it says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, where Paul describes his pre-conversion mentality, he says this, that he considered himself concerning the law, excuse me, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, he was blameless. That's in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. Do you see how he considered himself? He said, listen, guys, I'm blameless as far as the law goes. Nobody can accuse me of not keeping the law. Now, even though it must have offended the council, Stephen's message was true. The temple was a glorious gift of God, but it wasn't something that should have exalted. And secondly, they were guilty of what they had been guilty of so many times before, of rejecting God's messengers. Now, friends, right here, God was not only laying a bold message to the council through the mouth of Stephen. He was laying down a theological principle, which is going to be the foundation for the spread of the gospel from here on out. Up to this point in the book of Acts, the followers of Jesus were all centered in Jerusalem. I mean, I don't want to sound crass by this, but if at this moment in the book of Acts, you could have dropped a great big bomb on Jerusalem and killed everybody, Christianity would have been dead. The followers of Jesus were, were centralized right there in the midst of Jerusalem. Now, how did they spread out? Well, one of the theological foundations they needed to remind themselves of 
is that they were not restricted to any place. That God was not at the temple in Jerusalem any more than he was any other place. And Stephen was emphasizing this. God used Stephen's coming martyrdom to send the church out into the entire world. But he also used Stephen's message to show that there was no theological reason why the gospel should not go to the Gentiles. Think of it this way. The whole idea behind a permanent, stationary temple is this. You come to me. Right? Isn't that it? Here's God. He's living at the temple. If you want to meet God, you come to me at the temple. And that was Israel's mentality. Hey, whole world, you want God? Fine. Come to the temple and find him. And that's why Israel, even though that they were a light to the nations mainly thought in terms of the world coming to them for salvation. But through the church, through the work that God's going to see started right here in Acts chapter 8, the next time we get to it, God's going to show a different heart. Instead of saying, you come to me, God's going to say, I will go to you, including the Gentiles. And from Acts chapter 8 on, the church is spreading out from Jerusalem. It's a remarkable message. We don't have to be localized there at any temple or any particular city. Now, look at verse 44 to 54, I should say, to see the reaction of the council to Stephen's sermon. <clears throat> verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. And you know what image came to my mind? The image that came to my mind is the image of one of our Senate or congressional hearings. Can you picture that in your mind, right? You got all these senators. I was going to say pompous senators, but maybe they're not all pompous, but there's probably some among them that are. No, I know there's some among them that are. You got all these senators sitting behind tables, right? And you got a witness right in front of them. They're grilling the witness, right? Give us answers. Give us answers. And Stephen's the witness. And this whole council, they're the ones who are on trial. And these distinguished men, these high-standing men, first of all, they're cut to the heart. They're wounded. It hit the mark. How do you know that Stephen was telling the truth? Because they were cut to the heart. And he could see it on their faces. But what did they do? D did they say, Stephen, we're cut to the heart. Tell us what we must do to be saved. What must we do? Now, friends, I want you to recall back in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, did not it say then that people were cut to the heart at the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost? And what did they say? The people responded said, men and brethren, we're cut to the heart. What should we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. The men on that council did not want to hear those words. They were cut to the heart, but they resisted God even more. And you could see it on their faces as they were grinding their teeth. They were gnashing their teeth. They were so angry with Stephen and what he had said. Now again, these are distinguished men and they're furious with Stephen. Now Stephen has quite an experience starting here at verse 55. Take a look. But he, that is Stephen being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, friends, I tell you, I can't explain this experience that Stephen had. I don't think there's probably anyone in this room that could. 
I can't really tell you if, if he saw, you know, a window into heaven or if this was just an experience that he saw it in his mind's eye. I really don't know. But Stephen, uh, marked with this, he, he gazed into heaven being full of the Holy Spirit and he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. Now, again, I can't explain all that he saw there. But I can tell you that it seems very significant to me that he saw Jesus standing. Because, you know, repeatedly in the New Testament, it talks about the posture of Jesus in heaven being sitting at the right hand of God the Father, right? There's several passages that speak about that. But here, in a unique way, Stephen says, I see him standing. Why was Jesus standing? Well, again, I'll suggest some reasons. I mean, I... I can't say for certain, but here's some reasons why Jesus may have been standing. First of all, Jesus could have stood out of solidarity and sympathy for his suffering servant. Stephen, I'm with you. I'm standing up for you right now. I am with you, my servant. Secondly, Jesus stood in honor of Stephen. Don't you think this was a little bit like a standing ovation, right? I honor you, Stephen. Stephen, you're about to be the first martyr of the church. I stand in recognition of this. I stand to honor you. But I'll give you a third aspect to it. Jesus stood to plead Stephen's case before God the Father. Jesus said this. He said that if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my before uh, our God. I will confess you before God. Isn't that glorious? Don't you want Jesus to stand up before God on your behalf and say, this one's mine. This one belongs to me. This one is connected to me. He's okay, God, because he's with me. That's what Jesus was doing at this moment, I think at least in one aspect of it. He was assuring that even though Stephen was found guilty on earth, even though he was about to be punished on earth, he was found righteous in heaven and he was going to be rewarded in heaven. And Jesus is standing in recognition of that. Now, let me just tell you, I think it's wonderful that Stephen said that. But man, this did not make the council happy. It did not make the council happy that he mentioned Jesus once again and that Jesus was glorified in heaven. Because look at what the council does in verse 57. This blows my mind. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. I can hardly believe these words. I mean, I believe them, but they're kind of shocking. Again, you're like at a Senate hearing, right? And what Stephen said about seeing Jesus in glory, standing at the right hand of God, was, was so maddening to the people of this council that look at what it says, verse 57. They cried out with a loud voice. They started screaming. They put their hands over their ears. Metaphorically speaking, if you keep that Senate picture in mind, they leapt over the tables and they rushed him with one accord. And they grabbed onto him, dragged him out of the council, and they murdered him in about the most brutal way you can murder somebody. Now, they didn't crucify him. 
But to throw rocks at a man or a woman until they're dead, that's a tough way to die, don't you think? And they did this because they were so outraged at what they said, at what he said. Now, please remember, these were distinguished older men behaving this way. They wailed in agony and they covered their ears at the revelation of God, which they regarded as blasphemy. My friends, I just want to touch on this point quickly, but but I, I think it needs to sink deep. It is a dangerous thing to be religious apart from a real relationship with Jesus Christ. I'll say it again. I just want it to sink in. These men were religious, were they not? They were religious leaders. It is a dangerous thing to be religious without a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's exactly the situation that the men of these council were at. They, they, so to speak, leapt over their tables. They ran at him. By the way, ran at him right there in verse uh, 57. It's the same ancient Greek word that was used to describe the mad rush of the herd of swine into the sea when Jesus cast the demons out that with the gathering demoniac. This was an out-of-control mob rushing at Stephen. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. That they didn't take any recognition of the normal protocols that for execution they had to refer somebody to the religion, to the, the government authorities. No, they just did it. And they did it on their own to make the point. Now, friends, you would think that Stephen would be the one crying out in terror, that he would be the one afraid. But he's filled with peace, he's filled with glory. And it just goes to show us who's really on trial here, right? I don't think Stephen was on trial. He stands approved. Even though that when they executed him, it says right there in verse 58, that the witnesses laid down their clothing at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now here's Saul supervising the execution of Stephen. The stones are hurled at him. The the, the guys, it's hard work to stone somebody to death. And so they take off their outer cloaks and they lay him in. Saul supervising the whole thing. And that man, Saul... Saul of Tarsus, a member of that council, a notable young rabbi. That man's going to become Paul the Apostle. Why? Because of the prayer that Stephen prays in verses 59 and 60. Let's take a look at that together. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's life ended the same way that it had been lived. In complete trust in God. He believed that Jesus would take care of him even in the life to come. And so he cries out to Jesus and says words that that we remember Jesus saying on the cross, right? Did not Jesus surrender his spirit to, to the Father on the cross. Did not Jesus forgive his executors even as he was on the cross? And so we here we see Jesus, uh, Stephen, I should say, like Jesus in his life, like Jesus in his death, even saying, do not charge them with this sin. God answered Stephen's prayer, and most specifically, he used it to touch the heart of a man 
who energetically agreed with the stoning, even though the man didn't know that the prayer was being answered. Listen, when you get to heaven, you find Stephen and you thank him for everything you've ever received from one of Paul's letters. Because his prayer led to the salvation of Saul of Tarsus. He cried out with that loud voice, asking God to publicly forgive his accusers, and he made those promises loud and clear. Then at the very end of verse 60, it says, he fell asleep. The text describes the passing of Stephen in the most tender way possible. Friend, there's nothing tender about being stoned to death. But as tenderly as possible, he lay down to sleep. And he woke up in a much better world. He fell asleep. Now, Stephen wasn't a superman. He was a man simply filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you or I were put in the same extremity, we would trust that the Holy Spirit would touch us and fill us if we were so open to be strengthened in the same way that Stephen was. Friends, I've got to get back to the reaction of this council in just a moment. Listen, Stephen's main charge against them was that they resisted the Holy Spirit. And I'm just struck with that. You and I, at some time or another, you're going to be cut to the heart by a word that God brings to you. I, I won't ask you to raise hands, because I think it'd be useless for, for every honest person. Every honest person would raise their hand. How many of you have been cut to the heart by a word from God? You've had that done in your life, right? And it doesn't matter if you have never yet walked with Jesus or if you've walked with Jesus for 20 years. You know what it's like to be cut to the heart by a word from God. Now, here's the thing. When you are cut to a heart, cut to the heart by a word from God, how are you going to respond? Are you going to resist God and respond with anger, oftentimes taking it out on other people? Isn't that exactly what happened to Stephen? Or... Will you respond like the people who were cut to the heart in the second chapter of Acts, where they said, tell us what we must do. And they repented, they believed, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Friends, this is what God wants us to do when he cuts us to the heart. I think it would be very easy for us to sort of sit back in our comfortable benches and take a look at this religious council that had Stephen on trial and say, oh, those guys... Those guys, boy, aren't they messed up. Friends, how many of us, we resist God? You resist what God is doing in your life. He's cut you to the heart. He cut you to the heart this last week. He cut you to the heart this morning. He'll cut you to the heart next week. How do you respond when God cuts you to the heart? These men had every opportunity to respond in a way that was full of submission and honor to God. Yet they decided that they would resist God even more. Don't you make the same mistake. I don't think for a moment that I'm speaking before a religious council that's hostile to Jesus Christ. But, but I'm speaking to people I think who are a lot like me and deal with the same issues that I have to deal with. God cuts me to the heart. How will I respond? Listen, I, I'd rather be a man like Stephen. Not a man who's a superman, but a man who has his eyes focused on who Jesus is and what Jesus did for him, and to hear those words that Stephen heard. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. 
I'm going to close with prayer now and then we're going to continue in worship. But I ask that you would let God marinate this, soak it into your heart. Every one of us, God speaks to us. Every one of us, God cuts us to the heart with a big cut or a little cut. How are you going to respond when God speaks to you?